0: Welcome to NefHacks, High Yield Nephrology at Your Fingertips. This is your host, Andrew Kowalski. I'm the founder of NefHacks, and I'm also a practicing nephrologist. Please visit us at www.nefhacks.com, that's N-E-P-H-H-A-C-K-S dot com. Also, join us on our Facebook group, where I'll be posting updates on our podcast, as well as general updates in the field of nephrology. Let's get ready to make nephrology fun again. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of NEPH Hacks. So on our last podcast, we were talking about hyponatremia, and please review that last one as much as possible. We did cover a lot of information, especially talking about the semantics involving, well, I call them semantics, but involving the use of hydration and volume and some of the physiology behind it. So now I want to take this little step further, and I want to talk about Um, moving down the spectrum of hyponatremia so when we first were talking i said you know first thing to do is take a look at the sodium what's the sodium and that's going to help drive what direction you're going to go and then we talked about serum osms and basically i think checking a serum osm has very little utility in the grand scheme of things in terms of hyponatremia i think it does benefit In certain instances, especially if you don't know the history or if someone was found down and unresponsive and you don't know what they might have ingested and so forth, completely valid. It needs to be done. It's actually a really good tool, super fast to get back, and you can start treatment immediately. But for all intents and purposes, outside of that, you're going to know what's happening based on the story that you get in the labs. Same thing with ISO. You're pretty much not going to see this anymore because of the way the new lab equipment works. And worst case scenario, just send out a VBG. I mean, ABG if you want, but VBG is even easier because you can just get it from any venous site and then send it for lights. And then you're going to get your sodium your potassium and all that, and you're going to know what your sodium is. So the vast majority is right here. It's hypovolemia, right? And then this is where we have to assess volume status. And this is where I was saying that volume implies sodium and water, but hydration implies just water. And that's what we talk about um, in terms of sodium concentration. So what we're saying here is that in this category, this patient is overhydrated, but volume down. This patient is so this is a new volemic, This patient is overhydrated. But volume neutral, and this person is overhydrated and volume overload. Okay? So let's go with hypo, because hypo is one of the easier ones. So when we talk about hypovolemic, you know, this is kind of like the standard um, question, and we see this a lot, right? So, and it's really intuitive too, right? So this is a patient who, you know, comes in with decreased blood pressure orthostasis then they also have um maybe a syncopal episode then they also have you know the increased skin turgor you know all that stuff so they're volume down aki you know let's not forget that we are a nephrology group so aki and what ends up happening is you know you get it from the story right did they hemorrhage did they you know become volume deplete and this is from diuretics this is from vomiting more commonly diarrhea All right so what happens here if you check the urine studies right so what you're gonna look at is you're gonna see your urine sodium is going to be less than 20, your urine osms are going to be greater than, I'm going to say, well, I guess it all depends, but I'm going to say it's greater than 300. So we'll just assume for the sake of this that your normal serum osm is 300, okay? So we'll say that the serum osm is going to be, uh, urine osm is going to be greater than your serum osm, than your normal serum osm. Okay? And what does this tell you? This tells me that whatever's getting to the kidney, the kidney is going to hold on for dear life. And because of that, the urine is concentrated. Now, here's the thing. What happens if you send out your urine lights and they don't come back in time, but you can get a urine dip back? Right? Well, the urine dipstick has something called a specific gravity. Right? Or just the UA in general. Right? So your specific gravity. One point, and we, I think we talked about this. One point zero one zero to one point zero one six. It's usually about one point zero one four ish. You know, somewhere around there is considered isostiuric, which is normal, uh, which means that the urine osms, right, or what the composition has an osmolality as similar to the serum, right. So that means it's going to be around two eighty three hundred, give or take, right. So if your specific gravity is north of 1016 or 1.016, then to me that means that your urine is exceptionally concentrated, right? So it kind of fits an elevated osm. But if you're less than 1010 or 1.010, then you're dilute. So I'm just writing down dilute and concentrated. So, what does that tell me? Well, if the urine is dilute, then this isn't that high. So, we'll get into a little bit more of the physiology, but just kind of teasing you on this one. If the urine osm is lower than what you would think should be going on, then there's two things that are happening. Either the patient is correcting, right? So, now the patient, whatever happened... ADH was shut off, and the urine osms are decreasing in concentration, meaning that more free water is present in the urine, so the body's dumping free water trying to correct the hyponatremia, right? Because it's water overload. Or maybe they can only concentrate to a specific, um, a specific range, and we'll get to that in a second when we talk about a washout of the concentration gradient. So that's hypovolemia. And really quick, how do you treat hypovolemia? And a little pause so you guys can think about it, but you should know this, right? It's IV fluids, right? You give IV fluids. And how does this work? Well, if you go back to this drawing, if you're giving IV fluids, you're going to have an increase in filtration. You're going to get all this absorption. All this is going to be happening. And when you get here, you're going to have a higher concentration of volume, and you're also going to have a higher concentration of chloride. So what happens? Uh, Renin angiotensin shuts down. Then when this mechanism across the blood-brain barrier shuts down, so you don't have ADH release from RAS, and most likely your osms are changing because you're giving a normal saline. So normal saline equals 308 osms, right? So if normal is 280, right, you're giving a mildly hyperosmolar agent. So what's gonna happen is if you're repleting volume and you're shutting off RAS, then the RAS portion that's adding to the ADH secretion is being eliminated. So there's one trigger that's eliminated. And two, your OSM receptors are gonna pick up that you're gonna have a higher OSM load, intravascularly speaking, and then that's gonna lead to a shut off of ADH. So as soon as you start repleting volume, this whole thing shuts down, urine sodium might start to increase, urine osms will start to decrease, and you're going to start seeing a correction in the sodium. So all you have to do is give IV fluids. Now, let's take a little movement. We're going to skip over euvolemic, and we're going to go over to hypervolemic. So we're going to do podcasts on each of these separately because there's a lot to talk about okay so i'm going to like briefly go over some of the fizz behind them and how they work but we're going to get into them in a little bit more detail so this is what we tend to remember in the mnemonic range as your osis right so this is your cirrhosis your cardiosis meaning your chf and your nephrosis Now, those aren't terms this is but nephrosis means nephrotic okay so these are the typical ones that will lead to it now if you see hyponatremia in any one of these that is a poor prognostic indicator right and we'll circle back to that in like five minutes because this is what I want to get across if you check the urine sodium on these individuals, right? And you check the urine osm on these individuals, right? Now remember, they have edema. So you already figured out their volume status. So you technically don't have to check this. But what if you didn't see them yet, right? You know, you got a call from the ED. ED told you that this patient, you know, came in, there's hyponatremia, yada, yada, yada. You're like, great, send out the urine lights. You see the urine lights before you see the patient, and then, you know, you start creating a differential. What I'm going to tell you is that if you don't know, or if you don't do a proper exam, you know, you can come up with whatever scenario where you're not aware of the edema, then what you're going to see urine light-wise is a little confusing because your urine sodium is going to be low and your urine osm is going to be high. And that's really confusing because that means this looks just like your hypovolemic patients. And the reason being is that these individuals are all, or they all have an effective decrease An intravascular volume. All right, so I apologize for the people that are on listening to the podcast and there's all these pauses and, you know, me speaking really slow, and that's just because I'm writing things down on the sheet of paper for the video. But so this is what we have we have an effective intravascular volume depletion. So what does that mean? Well, what happens when you're cirrhotic? What happens when you have CHF exacerbation? What happens when you have nephrotic syndrome? All of this leads to volume overload, right? And volume overload, we talked about edema, maybe an increase in blood pressure, right? But there's a mishap. So when we talk about cirrhosis, what are the key features of cirrhosis? Well, they have a decrease in albumin, they have a decrease in blood pressure, they have vasodilatation, right, and what does all this lead to? Well, a low blood pressure means low perfusion. Vasodilation, which will lead to low blood pressure, implies low perfusion, so we have low perfusion. But then we also have hypoalbuminemia. So what is albumin? Well, when we look at your artery, capillary, and then vein, right? You have blood flow going to, through the arteri- arterioles into the capillaries. It all spills out. And this is all done by hydrostatic pressure, right? So blood pressure, in other words. So all of it gets squeezed out. And then what happens here? All that fluid with the waste products, because this should be all nutrients, with all the waste products getting pulled back into circulation. But what's driving it? albumin or oncotic pressure so it's a magnet so if your albumin is low you don't have the magnet so you might get some of the fluid back in but you're not gonna get all of it right so this is gonna start to accumulate and you're gonna start to accumulate fluid in the tissue so that's how you get edema and cirrhosis and what happens is because you have edema and all this volume that you have is spilling into the tissues, intravascularly, you're depleted. So the kidney is appropriately seeing a decrease in volume and is appropriately sending RAS (coughs) initiation, so renin, angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, aldo, is appropriately then stimulating ADH, but is inappropriately leading to water retention and sodium and water accumulation. So these people have edema and they end up having hyponatremia, right? What's part of the MELD score? It's hyponatremia. So these are poor prognostic indicators. What happens when you have CHF exacerbation? Or even from a chronic perspective, right? It's a bad pump. Well, a bad pump is decreased perfusion. Decreased perfusion leads to what? A decrease in GFR, which means an increase in RAS, stimulation of ADH, and therefore you get edema not only because on the back end, so if here's your heart, right? So now you have an increase in pressure on the back end because your heart's so weak. You're not, whoops, I'm not even on the screen. So you have a back end increase in pressure because your heart's so weak, so you're not getting anything back into circulation because you have a decrease in your afterload, right? So you have a decrease in BP during an exacerbation, or you might have an increase in BP because you have um, sympathetic nervous system stimulation, But what does that also cause? That also causes RAS, right, which causes volume retention. Angiotensin 1 does cross the blood-bain barrier, leads to ADH release. But if your heart failure is so bad that you also have poor perfusion, in addition to your sympathetic stimulation, what's going to happen? You're going to have ADH on board. And what happens? Your sodium drops. And then in nephrotic syndrome, this is all albumin-driven right? You're losing so much protein that you have no oncotic pressure. So in all of these scenarios, you have an appropriate renal response, but it's all in an inappropriate setting. It's all because they have volume overload and the volume is in the wrong place. It's outside of the vasculature. So the kidney's doing the right thing, except in the wrong setting. So if you don't know what the back history is right you don't get the full picture you don't do a full exam and you just see this well reflexively you might say hey give fluid and what are you going to do you're going to make each and every one of these worse right so how do you treat these people well if you look at the algorithm they say diuretics right and that's great from a cosmetic perspective Because the whole point is you need to get this volume off. Because the more volume you have, the harder it's going to be for your hemodynamics to function. So in CHF, the more volume you have, the harder the heart has to work, which means the less it's going to be efficient. If you overload in a cirrhotic patient, well, they're just going to get puffy. You're going to have ascites. And then what happens? Their normal cardiac function might turn into a diastolic cardiac function right and we'll talk about that when we talk about cardiorenal syndrome and we talk about hrs and then in nephrotic syndrome it's just terrible right they start filling up with fluid filling up with fluid filling up with fluid so the treatment is diuretics for cosmetic but you want to treat the underlying condition right How do you treat heart failure? Well, actually, in this case, you do give diuretics because you want to reestablish better hemodynamics, right? So if the heart has to push around all this load, and this load is so heavy that it's spilling into the tissues because of increased venous congestion and increased um, hydrostatic pressure in the venous system, right? And maybe a decrease in oncotic pressure because maybe they're, you know, low perfusion. Maybe the liver's not doing as much as it can. It has congestive hepatopathy or whatever the case may be right? You want to offload the heart. If the heart is meant to lift 50 pounds, let's say, and now you're overloaded and the heart's supposed to beat at 60 pounds a minute, or in other words, lifting the 50 pound weight 60 times above its head. And now you add 70, 80 pounds to it, and you expect it to do the same amount of work. It's not going to happen. It might for a brief period, and then it's going to start to slow down. But if you offload the heart, And you take that 50-pound weight away and you give it 30 pounds, yeah, it can do that all day. And that's how you get a heart failure patient back on board, right? You improve their hemodynamics by either improving their contractility or you offload them so there's less of that to move around. It makes it easier. So that's why we always want to keep heart failure patients just below the cutoff of being on the drier side. In nephrotic syndrome, it's all about cosmetics, right? We give the diuretics to get the volume off, right? Because the worst thing you can do is become sedentary in any of these conditions. So we get the volume off, and then we treat the underlying condition. What's causing the nephrotic syndrome, right? Is it diabetes? Is it minimal change? Is it membranous? Yada, yada, yada. And you go after all those conditions independently. And then in cirrhosis, what do you do? Well, what's the problem? You have a decrease in blood pressure and vasodilatation. So what do you give? You end up giving a presser. You have decreased albumin. So you can give albumin, right? Now, it's transient, but at least it can help. It can help pull that. Because technically in a cirrhotic, the heart and the kidneys work well, right? It's just the liver's failing. So if you pull all that fluid back into circulation, it should be able to be pumped to the kidney, and the kidney should be able to get rid of it. So you really don't have to do anything extra from that perspective except get the magnet on board and pull it into circulation. Now the other thing is, you know, where else is a lot of this blood situated? Well, it's sequestered, right? It's in the splanchnic circulation. So what do you do? You give something to squeeze everything back into circulation so you're filling up the vasculature and increasing delivery to the kidney so you can get rid of all this volume. But again, not knowing this... Or not doing a good enough exam, and just seeing this, you can really hurt these people just by giving fluid. So I want to keep that in mind. So even if you're looking at test questions, and you quickly look to what the labs show, and the labs show this reflexively, you might want to, you know, you might scan the answer choices and pick give fluid because this is what you're seeing. But you got to read what's being um, what's being described. Do they have edema? Do they? or might they have any of these conditions so just a little fair warning there so now let's talk about euvolemia so euvolemia is interesting because euvolemia is where the volume component is fine so if we go back to this picture RAS is not on board you have adequate GFR you have adequate You know, removal of solutes, removal of water, you have adequate flow and adequate chloride delivery, so this is not on board. The problem is you have other reasons for ADH to be stimulated. So in this case, we eliminate the first part, the sodium and water reabsorption, so you have disproportionate zero to water. So you're just accumulating water. So in this case, it's only ADH. Or in other words, SIADH, symptom of inappropriate ADH release. So what are you going to see from the urine study perspective? Well, you're going to see a urine sodium that's high. So I'm going to say it's greater than 50. might even be higher than that depending what the person's eating. You might see urine sodiums of 100. It's not uncommon. And then you're going to see a urine osm of what? greater than 300 and why is that well all this all the contents is making through you're getting all this processing done right because we talked about all this processing in the tubules and in the concentration gradient and once you get to here you're not really absorbing much because you don't have the stimulation to absorb but this is hyperactive you have all these aquaporin channels embedded so what's going to happen you're going to start absorbing all that water so again You're reabsorbing the water, and the urine's becoming concentrated. So you're going to have, one, a lot of sodium in the urine, which is going to lead to an increase in urine osomes, but then you're also removing a lot of that free water to make it even more concentrated. So it's not uncommon to see these at six or even 700, maybe even higher. Because technically, if we go back to the concentration gradient lecture, you can dilute to concentrate roughly about a factor of 10. So your osm's at the upper portion of the cortical medullary junction is about 120. At the lowest portion is about 1,200. So it's not unreasonable in a very healthy kidney to have a urine osm of upwards of 1,000 if the um, machines can measure that high. And that's a very concentrated urine. So when I talk about euvolemics, I break these down into... Um, outpatient and inpatient. So NPT and then other, right? So outpatient, we're looking at medications. That's the most common, right? And right off the bat, you're probably thinking SSRIs, and that's correct. So SSRIs decrease the threshold of release. So you constantly have a mild subclinical SIADH. The reason why you're not symptomatic and you're not seeing a huge change in this is because of the concentration gradient. You're still eating, which means you're pulling fluid out, so you're diluting, and then you're reabsorbing solutes. So you're reestablishing that concentration gradient. So you're able to pull some water and you're pulling water because the concentration gradient is allowing you to but you're also pulling urea right here you're so your solute is your sodium your chloride your potassium this is your urea your ea right and that's contributing to this lower portion urea basically means your protein intake so you're maintaining your concentration gradient and you're pulling a little bit of water but considering you're still eating you're not gonna have a problem It's only when this is disrupted is when you're going to have a problem. So SSRIs can do it if there's something else. So SSRIs plus insult. Another one we tend to forget but we give so often, NSAIDs. NSAIDs not only cause a change in GFR because of afferent vasoconstriction, so you already get poor flow, which means this is increased. Right? which means this is activated, but it also causes a discharge. So you lower the threshold, and you cause a pre-renal picture in a euvolemic state. So NSAIDs, but again, that won't happen unless there's an insult. Right, You're not going to see this in a normal individual, because how many people take NSAIDs? A lot. How many people take SSRIs? A lot. How often do you see this? Very little. So you have to have this insult that takes place. Other meds are anti-epileptics. Now, usually it's the older ones, right? So you have your carbamazepine, your oxcarbamazepine, but even Kepra, So levetiracetam, can cause it you do have some smaller discharge in ADH. Not as aggressive as some of the older ones, but it is possible. And in the right setting, meaning the right insult, you can manifest um, ADH release and you can have hyponatremia with it. Again, doesn't happen often, but it's something to keep in mind. So medications are the big ones for outpatient. For inpatient, it's pain and nausea. And that's kind of silly, right? Like, why those two? Well, I talked about that the body does a shotgun approach, right? When there's a stressor, it releases, right? It just blasts. But it tends to be a pretty good in the sense that it's going to shoot more of what's needed and less of everything else. But it's still a shotgun blast. So if you're stressed, right, if you have a huge pain stimulus... Well, you're going to have a discharge of everything, right? Your sympathetic nervous system's discharging, all this stuff. But your body doesn't know the difference. You're in pain. You're uncomfortable. Your leg could be cut off for all intents and purposes. It doesn't know. So it's going to release RAS. It's going to release ADH, right, in the meantime. So with pain, you're going to have ADH release, which is going to lead to hyponatremia. With nausea, right it's a volume component too right that's only if you're vomiting but if you're just nauseous and you're not vomiting there's really no volume issue now you can argue that you have what's called insensible losses and every day you're going to lose Roughly about half a liter to three quarters of a liter just by breathing and doing daily activities. If you're febrile, then it's going to be more than that, right? So you will have water loss. So your serum osms might go up and then you might have an ADH trigger. But for the most part, there's no volume issue, all right? But it's a stressor and the stressor is going to release ADH. So what's going to happen? ADH goes up. Therefore, water gets reaccumulated, and your sodium drops. Now, I should have said this earlier, and I kind of passed up on it quickly, but in all of these, none of this will happen overnight, right? Unless you're strapped to a bed and infusing free water, right? And in these conditions, you will not develop hyponatremia overnight. This takes days to weeks, because in each of these cases, right, If you're hypovolemic, what's going to happen, right? You're going to, you're still going to be eating and drinking most likely, right? Except in like the most extreme cases, like your septic, whatever the case may be, right? If you're hypervolemic, you're still going to be eating and drinking. It's just, you have this elevation in ADH that's present. So you're always going to have a little bit more accumulation, a little bit more accumulation. So even in this, right, you're vomiting, you have diarrhea, you're on a diuretic, right? You know, what do they tell you when you're sick, right? You have gastroenteritis, drink fluids, 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 fluids. You got to drink fluids. You have a fever, drink fluids. You have a cold, drink fluids. You have a hangnail, drink fluids. Everything is fluids, fluids, fluids. So you might have stimulation of your hormones, but you're drinking fluids. So slowly you're going to start picking up free water. Now, Someone's going to ask the question, like, well, what if I drink Gatorade? What if I drink, you know, stuff with electrolytes in it? Well, here's the thing. Isotonic fluid is disgusting. And what I mean by that is whoever wears contact solution, spray contact solution into your mouth and tell me how well it tastes. If you're thirsty, is that what you're going to drink? The answer is no. Isotonic solution is incredibly salty. Incredibly salty. And anything that has electrolytes in it is going to be salty. So what do they do is they add glucose to it to kill the taste. If you look at your nutritional facts on any type of pop, soda pop, depending where you're at in the U.S. and how you say it. You're going to see a lot of sodium, but you're going to see a ton more sugar, and that's to kill the salty taste. If you look at your Gatorade bottles or your Powerade bottles or your vitamin water, you're going to see electrolytes, right? You're going to see your potassium, you're going to see your sodium, but you're going to see sugar because that's going to kill that taste. But in reality, it's going to be a hypotonic solution because you're not able to drink. It's not palatable to drink an isotonic solution. So, regardless of what you're drinking, maybe with the exception of Pedialyte, which I think is probably has the most solute in, still hypotonic, but probably gives you the most bang for your buck in terms of solute consumption. You're going to be drinking hypotonic solution. Everything is hypotonic. So you will be taking in some sort of free water with these solutes and you're going to be contributing to hyponatremia. Now, again, not overnight, Same thing in euvolemic, none of this happens overnight, right? And in this case, you have to have an insult. So I'm pointing to the medications. You have to have an insult present, and then it's still not going to happen. So you might have an insult, and let's say that insult is short-lived. Let's say it's a cold. Let's say it's gastroenteritis, right? And it's one of those 24-hour bugs. You're going to be fine because you're probably going to be drinking that day, but the next day you're going to go back to eating, So you're probably not going to notice that drop in sodium. But if this continues for a couple days, yeah, you're going to see changes. And then part of the reason why you're feeling so awful is because of the hyponatremia, right? It might be related to whatever's happening that's causing you to be hypovolemic or hypervolemic. But it's the hyponatremia that makes you feel terrible, right? You feel lethargic. You have the brain fog. you You end up having muscle spasms and all that. So all of this, and what I think is really funny about this inpatient setting business is that when I was a resident, we always had hyponatremia cases on the surgical floors. And why is that? It's because for some reason, surgeons always wanted to give half normal saline, right? So that means you have 0.045% sodium chloride, and basically it's half a liter of normal saline and half a liter of free water. So it's quite a bit of free water and then these people are coming off of anesthesia so they're nauseous their blockade is wearing off or their pain is wearing off and their pca pump hasn't arrived so now you have pain and nausea on board you have adh release and you're giving a component of free water and they develop mild hyponatremia and then other other is everything else that it's like my basket so i'm gonna write lung in big letters so Anything in the lung will cause ADH release because it's a stressor. Think about it. What if you can't breathe? It's a stressful situation. You're going to have all your hormone releases. You're going to have ADH release. So if you have pneumonia, and we see this a lot during flu season. We see this with COVID. COVID attacks the lungs It enters the ACE2 receptors. So you're going to see a COVID pneumonia. We see hyponatremia with COVID patients. If you have a lung contusion right, that's damage to the lung, that's a stressor, it hurts when you breathe, it's not comfortable by any means, you're going to have ADH release, and then ultimately you're going to have your cancers, so typically what you're going to get asked on if this is a question situation is your small cell lung cancer, right, but technically it's anything, it's anything that's in the lung is going to cause cancer, or sorry, any cancer in the lung is going to cause an ADH release, brain, I'm going to put that in a box too, because we're talking about trauma we're talking about meningitis so we're talking about trauma infection right meningitis we're talking about um, aneurysms or burst aneurysms seizures so anything that causes brain abnormalities whether it's brief or whether it's sustained is going to lead to hyponatremia now seizures being relatively brief um burst aneurysms hopefully relatively brief so you shouldn't really see those changes but if the brain is stressed and the brain is going to go through fluctuations of of volume change or trauma where you have shearing of the pituitary stalk, you're going to have adh release and then so those are like the two big ones i guess if you want to put it that way some solid organ tumors release ADH independently from the pituitary so you might have ADH release from solid organ tumors as well maybe some other medication concoctions and so forth so what do you do in this case well in this case you don't get fluid because you're going to make it worse and I'll explain how that happens you don't really necessarily diurese them because there's no volume issue that's going on or whatnot but you want to get the fluid off so what do you do you fluid restrict. And per the books, you want to restrict 500 cc's less than your urine output. Now, that is impossible because, at least in my institution, and I'm sure in most institutions, you're not going to see adequate I's and O's. And those are various reasons, right? Either the patient doesn't have a Foley. The patient you know ends up urinating and forgets to tell the nurse to check it the patient empties out his own or her own you know hat or urine jug so there's reasons why we can't get accurate eyes and o's but what i tend to say is on a daily basis what we consume on average is roughly about is roughly about two liters of fluid so if you go less than two liters or I even say less than one liter, then you're going to win. So let's get into the physiology of how to do this and two things that we didn't talk about, which I'm going to put right here on the next podcast because I don't want these to be too long. So just remember, review this a little bit. Probably have to go back to the previous podcast on the physiology behind it, and we'll do a nice little recap and tighten this up on our next podcast. All right, everyone. See you on the next one.